A day ago, the Russian state, the prosecutor general's office to be specific, very literally outlawed Medusa's work by declaring our newsroom an undesirable organization. By recording this podcast and sharing it with you, I'm committing what would be a felony inside Russia. In all their wisdom, the authorities in Russia have determined that Medusa's activities pose a threat to the foundations of the Russian Federation's constitutional order and national security. In other words, everything we do now, our investigative reports, our newsletters, our posts on social media, even our podcasts, it's all a crime now in Russia. Now, Russia has been banning undesirable organizations since 2015, and anyone who so much as participates or cooperates with such groups can face felony prosecution, which, if you think about it, is an especially serious limitation to impose on journalists who need to speak to sources to report the news. So this is pretty serious stuff for us. But I'll tell you right here, we will find ways to operate in these new conditions. We will continue to report events to our readers, millions of whom are still in Russia. We will not submit to this attempted censorship. And as I say on every episode, Medusa relies especially on our support from our international audience, from, from you, from people like you. Your contributions sustain our work, and we need your help to put the word out about our crowdfunding campaign, whether or not you're now contributing yourself. Medusa in English is here to stay too, of course. You're tuned in right now, after all. Our international edition is stronger now than ever. Our journalists report the daily news in and around Russia, delivering all that sweet, sweet content through our flagship website, our social media, our daily and weekly newsletters, and this here podcast. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On this week's episode, I spoke to Anna Arutinyan, the author of a new book titled Hybrid Warriors, Proxies, Freelancers, and Moscow's Struggle for Ukraine. It's about the early pivotal years of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, Anna spent years reporting on Russian politics and working as a senior analyst for the International Crisis Group in Moscow. She's now a Wilson Center Global Fellow. And she's also the author of the 2014 book, The Putin Mystique, Inside Russia's Power Cult. Now, in Hybrid Warriors, she draws on interviews reporting from the war zone and other research to construct the relationships between civilians, non-state actors, and the Kremlin that developed after Moscow annexed Crimea and began its intervention in the Donbass, the same one that spiraled into the god-awful war we see today. But why talk about hybridity when today's conflict has ballooned into an open invasion? If the men behind this bloodshed acted out of a sense of disenfranchisement and victimhood, then what are the prospects for a lasting peace? Are there any? What can we learn from hybrid warriors about the trauma that makes this irrational war seem inevitable to its perpetrators? That and more in my interview with Anna Arutinyan. Now, here it is. When looking at Russia whether you're a member of the public or you're a journalist or you're a scholar, do you think, I mean, the, the premise of this book is all about, you have a lot to say about the ongoing major invasion that started on February 24th, 2022. But the focus of the book is obviously events in 2014 and, and thereabouts and this initial hybrid you know, conflict. It started out as something of a Russia-influenced civil conflict and then escalated very quickly into something where Russia was more openly interfering and invading and so on. But 
do you think it is the concept of hybrid war and hybrid warriors does it still have as much is it still as valuable to consider and think about now or is that is it something that's important but is it in a historical fashion it's like yes before the february invasion hybrid war we have to think about it in terms of hybrid war but now maybe there's wagner but like what what is hybrid war now now it's all open war it's you know it's the, the, how do you respond to like people who might say well okay this is a nice history but like we're not we're not doing hybrid anymore that's a good question kevin thanks for that because you're right i mean in some ways after the invasion, um, this is a completely uh, different war. This is a, this is not uh, so much a conflict driven by non-state actors as it was in the beginning. This is this is the state's decision. So in some ways, yes, this is we're talking about somewhat two different wars here. I, I think they're part of the same thing, but I think the bigger issue is that the Kremlin's reliance on non-state actors and how it's some, to some extent it still continues, but rather uh, says a lot about a feature of his rule and what we tend to misunderstand when we ascribe you know, all sorts of power police to him and the so-called power vertical and how uh, decisions are passed down and implemented. So I think it, it, in the scope of this particular, of the particular war, yes, these are different issues, but I think in the, in the, in the sense of how we understand decision-making in the Kremlin, whether it's about Putin's reliance on non-state actors or his reliance on various other groups to make decisions and outsource policy, I think that's a wider issue of how Russia is governed. Mm-hmm. So I think that still remains relevant uh, if we're to understand, you know, how what's what's going on, what's going to go on in the future, how things are going to develop. So does that mean that like the the, the average? Westerner, or maybe even foreigner. I don't know. I'm, I hesitate. I, I'm very confident about speaking on behalf of all Westerners. Yes. <laughs> but <laughs> foolishly, obviously. But let's say that if the average Westerner thinks that Russia is essentially as close to a totalitarian state as it has been since Stalin or something like this, whether or not that's true or not, whatever. That seems to be a fairly common perception, at least among people that like to raise their voices and be heard or whatever. How do you reconcile that that perspective with this notion that actually there's a lot of chaos and the power vertical itself is sort of a, a myth. I don't know if you're saying that necessarily, but like if there's so much improvisation happening in Russian in the Russian leadership, does that mean that that's, like, what does that say about the nature of the dictatorship if like these hybrid warriors, these people on the ground, radicals and ideologues and so on, have such influence? I mean, like, aren't they supposed to be just getting marching orders? How does How does that... Who's who's right and who's wrong? So I think that when we think of a dictatorship or a totalitarian regime or whatever labels we put on it, we project in in the West. I think, and I I know I'm generalizing here. I I I don't I don't like doing it, but I feel I have to just for for uh, brevity. Uh, but when we do that, also we to do draw it, in an audience, you have to kind of make them think that they're all wrong about something. Even exactly. if, like, what you're saying in the end is like we are all on the same page. But let's just look at it this way: you have to start with saying, "You guys are idiots." Yeah. Well, no. I mean, <laughs> I think I, I, I think I mean, there's there, there are idiots. Obviously, uh, mm-hmm. there are a lot of idiots. But uh, there's also some really smart policy that assumes that has certain assumptions, which are natural because mm-hmm. they come out of our understanding of how. Western governments and Western institutions work and our assumptions about how if we, for instance, had a dictatorship, it would be all, you know, top down, power vertical, streamlined with the the guy at the top 
wielding incredible powers and controlling every, uh, you know, all every aspect of a citizen's lives. That is not the case. I mean, it was not the case in the Soviet Union, but more the point, it was never the case under Putin's regime. And I think in that case, in this particular situation, I think Putin as a ruler is, in that sense, somewhat unique in, in the way that he was always, he had a penchant for kind of balancing various interests. I mean, for him, it was a survival mechanism to get to where he was and also to stay in power as, as long as he did in a situation where institutions were incredibly weak. So you had to rely on personal personalist rule, but you also had to build up institutions because you needed to lean on them again to, to bolster your own power and again to, to, to survive in this in this situation. But in his particular case, I think what that led to, I mean, he, he's also, I tend, I mean, he's also a particularly indecisive leader. He he tends to make decisions at the last minute. He tends to be, I mean, at least in the beginning of his rule, he would listen to, you know, he, he had a lot of people he listened to. He would always kind of hear out various uh, perspectives. And that doesn't mean he would act on them and he would follow good advice, obviously, but he he, he would. And I think that this kind of, in, in, in the end, he wound up leaning too much on the nationalist hawkish security culture within the security services that in the end he increasingly started to believe were his only allies in the end hey we're not at the end yet not at the end <laughs> well not, not not yet i mean in the end like towards the late the later like yeah in the last couple of years yeah. and ultimately in the end like uh, up right. to 20 24th <laughs> yeah. uh, february yeah so i think that it's not that we we get everything wrong, and it's not that that this is not a personalist rule where you've got one man making decisions at the top and everybody really depending on him. It's that the way he does this and the way that he ends up being kind of driven by the by the nose, as the Russian expression goes, by his own um, by various interests that he ends up leaning on. I think that is unique. Uh, that is interesting, and that creates a lot of well, for the Kremlin, for a long time, it was an, an advantage and created a lot of opportunities, but it also creates a lot of chaos. Mm -hmm. And in the end, I think, you know, to get us where we are, I think it ended up boxing Putin in. Another thing I'd ask you to reconcile is this notion that Putin is kind of, he sort of zigzags between different policies, possibly even value systems, ideologies. This is This is part of the the regime's flexibility, which has been sort of an asset over time. And yet, when you view through an ideological lens the history of the Putin regime, do you see a lot of zigzag or do you see a sort of a, a linear line between where they started and where, they, where they've ended up? I mean, because it seems like there's a, been a lot of escalation in terms of, certainly in terms of like the, you know, their, their military actions abroad. I mean, there's been, if we kind of limit it to Ukraine, there's been there have been grievances about NATO expansion and and Western leaning Ukrainian leaders and so on and and you know anger escalating and growing and then it kind of became, and now it's it's escalated to this invasion to this full scale invasion was is that a zigzag or is that a, a, an arc or something like I see it as I see it as a zigzag I mean this is like what the hybrid warriors uh, what my book kind of shows is from the start this complete 
not not even zigzag from pivot from first we're gonna we're, we're bent on doing this and then we're bent on doing this. There was just a lot of a lot of indecision and a lot of improvisation on the spot of how to respond to the situation on the ground in Ukraine. So I think that for a lot of people, and this is this is the point that I really feel should have been countered from, from the start. I mean, from the start, there was this idea that, oh my God, Putin's going to annex half of Ukraine. That's what he's after. That's all he's been itching for. And that's what in, we have in to prepare 2014. for. Yeah. Yeah. And that wasn't the case. That's not because he's such a great guy and we need to give him a chance. Yeah. But that's because when you start, when you kind of prepare for the worst, you're in some ways creating pressures and incentives on your adversary to act out that scenario. Um, this is not just with Putin or the Kremlin. This is just, you know, if you look at personal relations. So I think what happened in, in 2013 and 2014, if we look at, and there's a, there's a lot we don't know. We can't get inside Putin's head and we can't explain, uh, you know, what he was thinking at any given moment. But based on the evidence at hand, and by evidence, I mean what people were saying publicly, what people were saying privately, and most of all, the actions that were being taken at the time, they point to a varied set of goals and objectives and potentialities that they were looking at around the annexation of Crimea and most importantly with, with Donbass. With Donbass, I think that from the beginning, there was a sense, there was a certain argument going on that after Crimea, in order to solidify this annexation, we have to get territories in Ukraine's mainland. But there wasn't any, you know, sense in the, like, there wasn't a consensus in the Kremlin that this is the way to go. There was, in fact, a lot of pushback. And, and one of the things I detail in, in my book is how in May, in, in, in April, Putin basically made a firm decision not to, not to invade, not to send conventional forces, not to annex or recognize the territories. This was after, you know, the, the, the so-called bunch of guys had, had taken over buildings in uh, Donetsk, Lugansk, and Kharkiv. Kharkiv mm -hmm. didn't work out, but Donetsk and Lugansk. And everybody was flabbergasted, everybody. Most of all the people in Donetsk and Lugansk. Most of all people like Girkin. And Girkin, as, as, as I also show in my book, there is evidence that he did this on his own. He was... People were trying to talk him out of it. Malafeev was trying to talk him out of it, and yet he did this anyway. Uh, he turned off his mobile phone and, you know, went ahead. Now, again, particularly conspiracy-minded people might want to say, oh, well, well, that's, that, that's just what the Kremlin wants you to think. Well, maybe, but sometimes I think the simplest explanation works best is that this is a guy who has an incredible ego and he wanted this, um, and mm -hmm. he did it. Do you think that does Putin maintain enough flexibility in terms of policymaking and ideology, let's say state ideology, to pull back on what he's doing now, on what Russia's doing now in Ukraine? I mean, obviously, this is the big hope of, I think, it seems like the, the Western powers that are aiding Kiev right now in the war is that they're saying, I mean, the stated US aim, at least at the time of this recording, is to push Russian troops back to where they were pre-February 24. Mm -hmm. Although now there's some indication that they're going to give weapons that will allow the Ukrainian military to hit targets even in Crimea, but it's unclear if that's with the intention of liberating Crimea or just kind of scaring Putin into thinking, oh, I could lose this. And so there's the, the hope, I guess, that you know that's the red line, but that Putin would 
would kind of back off if he thought it could protect that and so on. I mean, like that, if he if he ever did that, it would seem to suggest that he could indeed zig or zag backwards toward something else and justify it in some other way and presumably find the freelancers on the ground to help him justify that policy and so on. Or do you think he's he's gone so far now that Russian policy in Ukraine has reached some you know degree or level or whatever where they don't have that flexibility anymore? It, it would wouldn't work. I think that, first of all, again, if we're talking about the war as, as it is, and this is this is Putin's war now, and uh, this is not a so much a situation of relying on freelancers anymore. I mean, there's Wagner. That's uh, that is yeah. that is a major issue, but that's that's really not not pertinent to the question here. I think that after everything Putin has said and done by this point, he really is boxed in. I mean, he has to. This this is kind of for him. I think it's becoming existential that he is in a position where he's able to claim some sort of victory. Now, I also think that I, you know, I, I don't really see, I, it's hard for me to discern what it is and what kind of victory the Kremlin is hoping for. Look at their vague statements on denazification and demilitarize. What does that even mean? And I think this is, this is the thing. Again, their objectives keep changing depending on the situation on the ground, depending on mistaken uh, assumptions or mistaken strategies that didn't play out as they as they thought they would. And I think at this point, right now, really, it is it, it, Putin is in a situation where he's got very little to lose, I'm afraid. I mean, he's got a lot to lose, but, but in, some, in some sense, it's like he's, he's, in a, he's the one who's basically, it's, you, you, you win or you die, at least how, that's how they perceive it, I believe. Mm. I mean, look, if you repeat a propaganda narrative long enough to your own population, you're going to start to believe it yourself. That's just, you know, that's inevitable. You're going to start operating under that assumption. The social and economic mobilization is predicated on that idea that this is some kind of existential struggle. And, you know, whether or not, to what extent they actually buy this, we could question it. But I think, you know, the more you say this, the more you're, you're going to start acting on this logic. In that sense, this is the big question because. If there was an understanding from the Kremlin side, a certain like what they're, what, you know, if you look at what they're saying, they constantly want guarantees because they don't trust the West. Now, if they had guarantees about Crimea, and I'm not saying that this is like this is not advocacy here, but I'm just saying that this is kind of what they're shopping around for. This war is extremely costly for the Kremlin. This war is putting Putin in a very precarious situation. Increasingly so. This is not. If you look at the statements that he's he twice already said that he wants to end it. Now again, of course he's going to say that because he wants to look like the good guy. But underneath that, there part of that is a signal that look, we've got nothing to lose. We're in it for the long haul. We're going to keep going as long as we need to. But however, if you, for instance, come up with something that we like, hey, you know. So it's kind of given that Ukraine and given that the West is currently not prepared, I think, to really offer any concrete, not concessions, but any concrete like peace plan, you know, offers that Russia's willing to take, which is ultimately around Crimea. Right. Donbass, I think it, it's that that's trickier. Mm. I see this, this the fighting is gonna keep continue. Mm -hmm. In the book you draw special attention to the roles played by fears and, and doubts about agency as you as you describe it especially when it comes to nationalist perceptions of their own victimhood now beyond this being a very you know interesting psychological insight 
how do you think this ought to inform just how foreigners perceive this this war and maybe the motivations for it and maybe more importantly like how should that play in to western policy making because you know one of the the goals right now for a lot of people is is for russia to be defeated you know completely and some people want that to go all the way to dismemberment some people say no 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 just pushing back to the february 24 line of contact but that it needs to be a resounding defeat now it seems like there's a danger there where that would only like magnify the sense of, of disenfranchisement that ordinary Russians feel. So I guess like the question here is, if we're looking, this is, I think this is a very interesting sort of way to look at the conflict, right? Is like sense of dis- disenfranchisement, doubts about their own agency. So then what kind of peace would actually make things better? Like for them, they, I suppose like if you give them all of Ukraine, they'll be like, wow, we have a lot of agency. We feel really good now. We don't need Ukraine anymore. I mean, like, yeah. well, how does this work exactly? Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they, I don't think they want all of Ukraine. I really <laughs> oh, I don't believe that. They're very yeah. generous of them, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and no, not, that's not that's not because they're great guys. And look, w- when you've got this kind of, this this, this these grievances metastasizing and, and turning into what they are, into this yeah. hugely aggressive, dangerous nationalist bubble, by this point, Ask a person, what is it exactly that will make you happy? And he's not really going to be able to, you know, spell out a, you know, coherent thing that, oh, give me this and I'll be, you know, give us a a Kremlin-friendly president in Kiev, guarantees of no NATO membership and, and, you know, all sorts of things that even that might not make him happy anymore. I mean, I think this is like, we're we're, we're getting into so, so much into the field of emotions that it's tricky, but I think that preceding all of this there has been a problem that is that that was not that should have been taken more seriously and by taken more seriously that is not and i can't stress this enough taking russian concerns seriously is not giving them what they want it's merely taking them seriously it's merely thinking okay this is an issue this has all sorts of potentialities and uh, we need to think about this problem rather than saying it doesn't exist and it's made up by Russian nationalists. And the problem I'm talking about here is the breakup of the Soviet Union and the fact that there were divisions in, in Ukraine, in Crimea. There were issues with Russian speaking and pro-Russian groups wanting more autonomy and closer ties with Russia. And the worst thing you can do in this kind of situation is antagonize people like this and say that they are Russian, they are all Russian agents and uh, brainwashed Vatniks and Savoks. And when you do this, guess what? A lot of them do become Vatniks and Savoks, and a lot of them do become Russian agents. I mean, I, I, I was writing this book in Washington, D.C., and I couldn't help noticing the parallels in the polarization and divisiveness that we saw around Donald Trump and his voters. You know, when you, a lot of them are racists. A lot of them are, have horrible ideas and uh, adhere to, you know, all sorts of terrible values. But when you constantly berate them all for that, then some of them, then, then actually what ends up happening in society is the divisions are bred even further. People who wouldn't have thought, who, who you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have thought of siding with the far right end up siding with the far right. It's just human nature. I mean, we're not, we're not perfect. And I think that in a, in a big sense, like what was happening in Russia 
and in the former Soviet Union since 1991, and particularly since 1993, these issues were around. They were at the heart of various uh, peripheral conflicts around Russia. They have certain parallels, but they all basically come down to when you have an empire that breaks apart, when you've got countries that suddenly become independent, you're going to have constituencies in those countries that are finding themselves across a foreign border from their family members. I mean, literally. And what do you do about this? Now, I'm not saying, you know, give that territory back, but you're going to have to have a discussion. And either that's going to be about dialogue between the, the center of the, like, take, like, Ukraine in Kiev and the Russian-speaking communities and constituencies in the East, about real dialogue directly with them, not with the Russians, but with them to get the Russians out of it, or you're going to have to talk to the Russians about this. But, you know, that conversation is going to have to be had. It's just a question of who you, who you have it with. And I, I was, you know, over, over the years, you know, when I, when I was in Moscow, I was saying this is a conversation that needs to be had with the people of Eastern Ukraine. And the reason for that is that because if you have that conversation with Russia, you are making it, you are giving them power over those people. And you don't want to do that because that actually, that, 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 gives them a great deal of say in your own sovereign affairs. And I and think in, that in the, terms of policymaking, like, does that mean, I mean, presumably it doesn't mean like the U.S. ambassador is supposed to like, is he supposed to hold a conference somewhere in East? I mean, this is pre-war, I guess, like to avert the war. But is he supposed to like go to Eastern Ukraine and try to meet with civic leaders there and like extend an olive branch or something? Or like, how does this actually, how, how would it inform policymaking for the West. I mean, I guess like the, the obvious advice would be to Ukrainian officials to like listen more or not to treat the East as like all agents or so on or not to alienate them or you know that that would be, that would be the retroactive advice, I guess. Although like, you know, it hasn't worked so well. Bridging the ga the divide in the United States is also like good luck. <laughs> but I mean, so I guess like, is this just this, this this knowledge or notion is it all is it just something to kind of hold in our minds and hope that it leads us to speak more compassionately or like how do you see it playing out in terms of actual policy making well it's, that's good, good very good question because right <laughs> now obviously this is not the time to be doing that the time yeah. to be doing that was eight years ago six yeah. years ago four years ago two years ago one year ago however that is still something that's going to need to, to happen as Ukraine pushes the Russians out of uh, Ukrainian territories, which I expect will happen. They are going to have to deal with, uh, and, and again, this is a, this, I'm not talking so much about occupied Zaporizhia or uh, the, the newly occupied territories. I'm talking about uh, Donetsk and Luka, the, the Ordlos, the, um, the so-called Ordlos, the de facto statements that have existed since uh, spring of 2014. Mm -hmm. Those people there are, are, you know, there's going to need to be a lot of civic work with populations there, a lot of dialogue with the various groups um, that are de facto operating on the ground. Hopefully, there's a lot of groups that, that are not necessarily affiliated with, with in any way with Russia. It's just they, they are affiliated by simply by virtue of them being physically there. I think that's a conversation that's going to need to be had. I've noticed some reports that uh, there are there are these problems of uh, newly liberated territories. What do you do with people who are 
who do you define as a collaborationist? What is a collaborationist? A, a person who was at gunpoint forced to take orders from from Russian occupying forces? Does this does he also need he or she? And these are often women. Do they also need to be punished again for you know? Right now, I'm afraid this is not the priority. Just inevitably, it's just the reality. But this is this is something that's going to need to be addressed down the line, and Kiev is going to need to work out mechanisms of doing so. I think that they would they could use a lot of help from you know Western uh, groups. I know that there are uh, NGOs that are working on this issue with them, and that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that on a higher level, this this uh, this issue will need to be taken more seriously down the line. I think it's the final chapter, the the one where you start talking about the the February invasion. You begin, but without naming Putin, you describe him. He's like this nameless chinovnik, this like state official bureaucrat person, and you're kind of running running through these scenarios where he's sort of gradually being disillusioned with the early Yeltsin vision for Russia's path forward and all this. And you know, it's kind of the West is sort of giving him a bit of a cold shoulder, treating. The new Russian state is as as just more of the Soviet imperialism, or it's like they're you know they're, he's just feeling disrespected or something like this. And I wondered why did you feel like describing him as a chinovnik was going to be like the best sort of I don't know if it's not it's not an analogy, but it's just like this when, when you're when you're leaving out his name, but you decided to put in that descriptor. Like what what drew you to that particular thing, and why you know as opposed to former KGB or, you know, all the other things that people like to short guy, like whatever people think is like the core of his persona or personality or something you went with, or, you, you know, you're, you're using this nameless chinovnik as, as, as a sort of literary device. Why? I, I have to admit it was a bit of an indulgent, self-indulgent literary device. <laughs> uh, but what I really wanted to convey here was throughout the course of writing this book and talking to all of the various bunch of guys that were involved in the conflict both who, as fighters or as disillusioned politicians or as officials or whatever, I noticed this, you know, and a lot of these people, I noticed a similar strand of the sense of lack of agency, the sense of grievance and victimhood, the sense of being powerless. And I felt that in the end, I mean, looking very closely at Putin's statements, look, I, I, you know, I, I say in, in my book that we should be very, that I don't, you know, I can't presume to know what Putin wants and what he's planning. And this is true. And we need to be very careful about delving into what he thinks and what he feels. But at the same time, I've been looking at Putin very closely for over 20 years, looking, I mean, translating his speeches, uh, looking, analyzing his words. And I noticed that ultimately by his, in his own words and in his own actions, I noticed a similar strand, and that was becoming particularly prominent in the kind of things he was saying and writing in 2021 and 2022, and the run-up to the invasion and and, and around it. So what I wanted to show, again, was this, a, a guy who really sympathized with these people, who ended up leaning on them for political purposes, but who shared their sense of victimhood and grievance. And I just thought it was, you know, an important I guess, character development to see where he got from, you know, from where he was to, to where he is now. Because the thing about Putin is, and I think this is, again, often overlooked when we ascribe these enormous powers to him, is that he was a lower-ranking official 
he was not so much in the nomenclature. And I, I addressed this uh, from the beginning. And look, the issue of class in the Soviet Union is not non-existent. It wasn't, you know, I've spoken to former KGB generals and I've spoken to former KGB colonels. And these are different, you know, these are, there, there are differences here. There are cultural differences and there are differences in views. And I think that there was a lot of, you know, when, when Putin rose up, there was a lot of, in the beginning, projection of, oh, well, he's he's not one of us. He's a subvolk. He's, you know, there's a lot of snobbery going on. Again, I'm not saying this to justify Putin's sense of victimhood. By all means, I want to stress this. Well, look, these are, these are, this was going on. This is, you know, this is, this was the world through Putin's eyes. And I think that, Again, I'm being very presumptuous here, and I have to say it is it was a bit of a self-indulgence on my part, but I did want to portray that world a little bit through Putin's eyes as much as I could, and I was doing drawing very, very heavily on his own descriptions of these experiences and events. So it was a very carefully, like if you look at that chapter, it's very heavily footnoted, it was very carefully, like I tried to you know keep it as much to what he was saying and doing as possible notwithstanding that he is an incredibly unreliable narrator of his own um, vision. But that said, I think it is important to look at the world through the eyes of our adversaries. It is incredibly important even now. This is not because we need to sympathize with them or, oh, he just had a bad childhood. No, this is about to try to understand his logic and how he's going to act and how we would react and uh, plan our actions accordingly in order to get what we want. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. On today's show, you heard from Anna Rutinyan, the author of Hybrid Warriors, Proxies, Freelancers, and Moscow's Struggle for Ukraine, a new book about the early pivotal years of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. To grab a copy, please check the description of this podcast episode for a hyperlink to go do that. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in, and thanks for supporting our work at Medusa. Until next week.